Well, I've asked Garrett to share with us this morning. I originally thought that uh, I was going to be gone, and uh, turns out that we ended up coming back yesterday, but it was still uh, grateful for him doing that because it would have been very pressed to try to prepare, so appreciate you sharing with us. Before I get started this morning, I wanted to take a minute and just publicly um, thank everyone for their prayers, um, thank everyone for their generosity, uh, their labor, their love towards Kayla and I. Um, with the birth of our daughter, it's <clears throat> those of you who who know what it's like to go through that and what it's like to have that kind of outpouring of generosity from the saints. You know how hard it is to put it into words. How grateful that you really are. Um, and so all I can say is thank you, and from the bottom of our hearts, you know, thank you for your prayers. Everything went better than we could have hoped. Um, and we just we're just so thankful. And I thought of these verses this morning. In light of that, here in First Thessalonians, I'll just read these to you. Paul says this: We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And while I can't stand here and tell you that I constantly bear in mind um, the things that you all have done, I can say that we are truly thankful for your work of faith and for your labor of love, as Paul says here. Uh, and then also, this verse from Hebrews chapter 6, where the writer says this, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work, and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Now, it's quite a verse when you think about it because what it says is that even though you might perform a work of labor towards another saint, you know, six months, a year down the road, maybe less if you're me, you, they've already forgotten about it. And, but what he's saying here is that God doesn't forget about the things that you've done in service to the other saints. And God is not unjust, so as to forget those things. We'll forget them um, as the months and years go by, but God won't. And so know that everything you've done for us and for anyone here in the body, God does not forget that. And there, there's blessing and reward for you for doing those things. Okay. Um, we'll be looking then this morning in First Peter chapter 1. This is a message that I gave a few weeks ago at the Brashears, and I tried yesterday to start a different message two different times, and both times I felt like I was just hitting a roadblock, so um, I went back to this, and I hope that it's something that's an encouragement to you. I learned long ago that if a sermon's just not coming, it's just not coming, and you can't really force it, so I just... Gave up yesterday and went to this. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, 
We'll start reading in verse 10. It says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're going to focus this morning on that phrase in verse 13. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the great truths of Christianity and one of the things that separates it from every other man-made religion in the world is that Christianity teaches that from beginning to end, our salvation is all of grace, to borrow a phrase from Spurgeon. All of grace from beginning to end. Now, what is grace? We use that word all the time, don't we? And we read it all the time. Sometimes we don't even think about what grace is. And it's, and in a sense, it's hard to even define it. Um, I looked this up in a Bible dictionary, and this is kind of a standard definition, but I thought it was pretty good. It says, grace is unmerited favor. It is God's free action for the benefit of his people. It is different than justice and mercy. Now, get this. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Did you catch that? Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. In grace, we get eternal life, something that, quite obviously, we do not deserve. But because of God's love and kindness manifested in Jesus on the cross, we receive the great blessing of redemption. Grace is, and here's an uh, acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. And I'm not a big fan of acronyms, but I thought, or acronyms, but I thought that was pretty good. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace rules out all human merit. It is the product of God. Think of that. It's the product of God. In 1 Peter 5, Peter calls God the God of all grace. All grace that there is, is belongs to Him. Any grace that we have, any grace that is anywhere in, in the world, comes from Him as its source. He is the God of all grace. It's the product of God that is given by God because of who He is, not because of who we are. It is the means of our salvation. And so that's just one definition. And then I, th I thought I might read this as well. This is from Douglas McMillan. Um, this is an excellent little book, by the way. I know we've sold copies here at the, at the building before. The God of All Grace. Uh, it's very worth picking up. But he says this. <clears throat> We are not surprised to learn, therefore, that the Bible uses a very special family of words to describe and define various aspects of salvation. The uniqueness of salvation requires it to be so. 
What may surprise us is that there is one particular word frequently used in the Bible to convey to the reader the nature and character of salvation. Without this word, the word grace, the true nature of biblical salvation would never be understood properly. So crucial is this one word to the understanding of salvation that it provides a seedbed out of which grows the Bible's theology of salvation. All the major doctrines of the faith root back into it. It is, in many ways, the key word of Christianity. Without some understanding of it, the gospel of salvation remains an enigma. If it is used as the interpretive key, the gospel unfolds itself with perennial freshness and penetrating power. And then he goes on and he talks about grace as being consisting of power and love and freeness or gift. And so he says this in conclusion. He says, when we accept the biblical teaching that we are saved by grace, then we accept that we are saved by power, the omnipotent power of God. We accept that we are saved by love, amazing, undeserved, infinite love. And we accept that we are saved by a God who was absolutely free to have dealt with us, not in mercy, but in justice. That he has not done so when we owe, that he has not done so we owe totally to the fact that he freely chose to deal with us in grace. And so anyway, this, this thing of grace, it's a familiar word and we use it all the time. But to think about it and to actually look up some of these passages that deal with grace and that deal with our salvation and, and how grace is tied in. As he said here, grace is the seedbed that every other aspect of our salvation goes back to and is rooted in. And just think of it here. According to the New Testament, our election was of grace. And let me read some of these passages to you. We won't look all these up right now. Just take too much time. But first of all, our election is of grace. Romans 11. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Literally, God's choice of grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. And again, Ephesians 1, In love he predestined us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, what? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. 2 Timothy 1, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which were granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We sing that hymn, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Grace. So our election is of grace. Our regeneration, our new birth is of grace. Ephesians 2, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul inserts this, by grace you have been saved. Made us alive by grace. Our regeneration is of grace. Our justification is of grace. Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then also in Titus chapter 3, Paul says this, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being what? Justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So justification is based on grace. Also, forgiveness of sins, which is a part of justification, is based on grace. Ephesians 1 again, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Also, we're given spiritual gifts according to grace. Romans 12.6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Spiritual gifts are given out of grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign and rule of grace. Romans 5.20, the law came in that the trespass would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin has reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's grace reigning in the life of the believer. Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Again, not a command, but a promise. Sin shall not have dominion over you. The Christian has a standing in grace. Romans chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So to wrap it up, or to put it simply, Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved in every way by grace. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. So every aspect of the Christian salvation has its root or its basis in grace. And to go even a little further, we can say that this grace that we receive is embodied in the person of Christ himself. John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And we sing so many hymns that are full of this kind of language, but the most famous hymn in all the world, Amazing Grace. It's something, isn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And so you see it right there in Newton's hymn, from the very beginning of salvation all the way to God leading you home, it's of grace. So again, every aspect of our salvation is rooted in grace. Grace in the past, grace in the present. But what I think we often tend to miss, and this is what I want to really deal with this morning, is we tend to miss this aspect of the grace that is yet coming to us. And it's this grace, particularly, that Peter says... Again, in 1 Peter 1, he says that we are to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the second coming here. He's talking about the return of Christ, the revelation of Christ. And he's telling us we need to fix our hope completely, not just on past grace, as great as it is, not just on present grace, as wonderful as that is, 
but fix your hope completely on the grace yet to come, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, is this our mindset? Do we think like this? Are we this forward-looking in our minds? Or do we tend to focus on past grace and present grace to the exclusion of the future grace that's yet to come? Now, if you're anything like me, you tend to live in the here and now to the neglect of what's coming. Um, But what I want us to see this morning is that is definitely not the mindset of the New Testament. The New Testament has a different mindset than that. And just to give you a feel for this, I want to look at some different passages. And we're going to look at a lot of verses this morning, and I know that can be a mixed blessing, but I just I don't know how else to do this, because I can sit here and tell you, you know, the New Testament has this mindset of looking forward to the grace to come, but it's another thing when you actually see the verses. All right, so we're going to look at a lot of these here. Um First of all, we won't turn to this, but just consider even in the the life of Christ himself and in the teaching of Christ, consider the amount of space that he gave talking about things that were yet to come. Um, You have some of it in the parables, the tares and the wheat, the parable of the dragnet. But then you have extended teaching in Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, Luke 21. All of those are extended sections of Scripture where Christ is dealing with things that are yet future. And so a large portion even of his teaching uh, are the actual words of Christ are dealing with this aspect of things yet to come. But in addition to that, we'll look at a few verses here. Acts chapter 3, and we can turn to these. I've cut this list of verses down about five different times. I mean, when you actually start to think about it, there are just tons and tons of verses that you can look at. But I tried to just pick a few from different sections of Scripture so you can see how pervasive this is in the New Testament. But Acts chapter 3, verse 19, says, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, And then notice this, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So built right into the gospel proclamation here, he's talking about sending Christ. He's not talking about sending Christ for the first time because he's already come and left. He's talking about sending Christ again at the end of time for the second coming. So he's directing their gaze into the future. And then in verse 21, he talks about the period of the restoration of all things, which again is the new heavens and new earth, directing the gaze into the future. Book of Romans Of course, we have a lot here in chapter 5 and in chapter 8, which we'll look at a little bit more later on. But turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. 
Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. He says in verse 11, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now, I thought we were already saved. Well, in a sense you are, but yet there's a salvation yet to come that Paul is directing them to think about. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here again, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Talking about the second coming, awaiting it eagerly. And then we'll look at this later. We won't turn there now to read it. But in chapter 15, of course, of 1 Corinthians, almost the whole chapter is dealing with things related to the end times and the resurrection body and that sort of thing. Um, And then also another extended passage we won't read, but in 2 Corinthians 4, And on into chapter 5, Paul deals again with this thing of the resurrection body. Again, extended teachings, extended passages of Scripture talking about things yet to come. Uh, Galatians 5. Galatians 5 and verse 5. Paul says, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. So again, they're waiting for it. It's yet to come. It's still outstanding. It's coming. It will come. But by faith, we're waiting for it. Philippians 1.6, we don't need to turn there. Most of you probably have this one memorized. <clears throat> but he talks about uh, God being faithful... Paul says, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until, what? The day of Christ Jesus. Talking again about this day of Christ, the revelation of Christ, the second coming of Christ. See, we read right over those passages, but it's just, it's all over here. Even the verses that we know well, we just don't think of them this way. But there's tons of this kind of stuff in the New Testament. Colossians 3. In verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Another reference to the second coming of Christ. I just I don't know how many more of these to read. Maybe just a few more. Um, First Thessalonians chapter one.
verse 9, it says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. And so another reference to the second coming of Christ. He's coming to be glorified in His saints on that day. And then a real clear one here in Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now here it is, verse 13, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, when we read verses like that, we need to ask ourselves, am I doing this? Am I looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of my great God and Savior, Christ Jesus? Am I doing that? Is that my mindset? And then our passage for this morning in 1 Peter, right here in the context of the verse that we read, verse 13, we have several other things in 1 Peter 1 where he deals with this. 1 Peter 1, in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to what? to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So here we have an inheritance that's still to come. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 7, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Another verse talking of using that phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, just like verse 13. And then in verse 9, he says, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So again, this future salvation that's yet to be yet to be revealed and yet to come. And then one more passage, Second Peter three. Verse ten. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? 
But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. This is quite a phrase here in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Talking about, again, the second coming. So, again, I would ask you this morning, is this something that you do? Is this something that's on your mind ever? Hastening, looking for, longing for the coming of the day of God, the return of Christ. And again, we could look at many, many, many more passages, um, but I hope that's enough to show you that while we tend to focus on past grace and present grace almost exclusively, the writers of the New Testament were constantly looking to past, present, and future grace, constantly directing their gaze ahead. Now, if I were to guess, as I've already said, I would say this is something that most Christians probably struggle with. Um, You know, if I were just to ask you this past week, how often did you think about the second coming of Christ? How often did you pray about the second coming of Christ? I mean, Peter says we need to hasten this day. One of the ways we do that is by praying for it. Pray that God would do it, would send him. How often have you done that this past week? And again, if you're anything like me, you would have to answer not much because we just don't think in that way. But as we've seen, that's not the mindset of the New Testament. But I think there are several reasons why, um, several things that we can pinpoint that are reasons why we struggle with this and why we don't have that kind of mindset. First of all, we're too comfortable here. We're just too comfortable. And I was talking to Mason on the phone yesterday, and he said, you know, to the extent that I'm comfortable here, I'm not looking for all these things that we just read about. I mean, that's just fact, isn't it? I mean, we know that by experience. We're too comfortable here. Even a poor American is rich compared to many places in the world. And we just we have so much. And in a sense, that's not something we have to apologize for. I mean, God has put us here. You, you grew up here in America, and God placed you here. And we have to be good stewards of what he's given us. But the fact is, is that we have so much compared to many, and we become comfortable here. And if you're happy in the here and now, you don't tend to look much to the future. That's just the reality of the matter. And then also, we don't have the persecution here like they have in other countries. And persecution tends to make you look for things yet future, look for future deliverance. And we don't have that here. And that's the context of Peter's letters here, and that's one of the reasons why Peter talks so much about this in First and Second Peter is because he's talking to people who are suffering persecution, and he's constantly directing them to their future deliverance. So the first reason why I would say that this is hard for us is that we're too comfortable where we are. Secondly, our lives tend to be characterized by busyness that takes up much of our time and energy dealing with day-to-day responsibilities that are centered in the here and now. And again, it's not something we have to apologize for. I mean, I might like to just become a monk and read my Bible and pray all day, but the fact is I can't. I have to work. I have to take care of my family. I have responsibilities. But what that tends to do is it centers your thinking into the here and now. You know, I've got this to do at work. I've got this to do at home. I've got to work on this project. I've got this, you know, these papers to grade, these assignments I need to to work on, these lessons I need to plan. And it's all things that are temporal. It's all things in the here and now. But you can't avoid it, you see. 
It's just the, that's the fact of the matter. It's the reality. Um, we're so busy with things that are centered in the here and now that sometimes it's hard to even wrench your mind away from that in order to focus on things yet to come. Thirdly, another reason why I think we struggle with this type of mindset is that Christ's return and this whole thing of the end times is shrouded in a lot of mystery, and there's so much about it that we don't understand. We think about the timing of it. When's it going to happen? We think about some of the specifics of the blessings and things that we're going to receive, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But a lot of this stuff, I mean, it's just mysterious. That's the bottom line. We don't understand a lot of it. And there's a tendency when we don't understand something to just completely disregard it. You know, we can't nail it down. We can't pinpoint it. We can't explain it perfectly. So we just kind of don't even think much about it at all. But we know that's wrong. I mean, if we were to take that to its logical conclusion, we couldn't say hardly anything about anything scriptural because we don't understand anything fully in the Bible. You start talking even about the subject of grace, like we've been talking about this morning. I mean, how can you possibly understand the infinite grace of God? You can't even begin to understand it or explain it. But we know that just because we can't do that doesn't mean we don't talk about it at all. But there is this thing of mystery. And then fourthly, and I would say this is probably one of the biggest reasons today why we struggle with this, is that we've overreacted to dispensationalism and various forms of end times fanaticism. And I can remember growing up, I wasn't exposed to much truth, uh, much Christianity at all. But the Christianity I did see, and I say that lightly, was on television with these kinds of men who do nothing but preach about end times things, things related to the second coming, things related to the turmoil in the Middle East and how that relates to the book of Revelation and all that kind of stuff. That's the only kind of thing I ever saw growing up. The first Christian book I ever read, Christian book, was one of these end times books. I picked it up at a used bookstore. It, had, it was called 666, and that really intrigued me. And uh, it scared me to death when I read it. Um, but again, it was just nothing but this speculation about the end times. And then as a reaction to this, many believers who have grown tired of that kind of thing, many believers who grew up with that in churches and have come to see through it, end up reacting so much the other direction that they tend to not even talk about the second coming or talk about things related to Christ's return hardly at all. And that's wrong. I mean, again, it's all over the New Testament. It's all over the place. And to not even talk about it is just flat out wrong. It's not biblical. Uh, God tells us these things to, to encourage us and to comfort us. And he says that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, where Paul's giving some of these details about the second coming. He ends those sections by saying, comfort one another with these things. I mean, you can't comfort one another with those things if you never even talk about them. And they're meant for our encouragement and for our comfort. But we overreact to them. And I tell you what, this thing of overreacting is one of the greatest tools that the devil has used in church history to keep Christians from entering into things that are theirs rightfully. Uh, different truths and different um, biblical things that are meant for our encouragement. The devil will allow people who just take those things and go to extremes with them, he'll allow them to do that so that Christians will overreact to it and miss out on the blessings that are theirs and that God intends for them to have by considering these things. 
And we can't allow ourselves to be robbed of these truths. We can't allow ourselves to be robbed of the encouragement and the comfort that belongs to us just because there are wackos out there who talk about these things in a wrong way. They're not meant for them. They're meant for us. Um, They're for our encouragement. But I would say that that's probably, at least in the circles that I'm in, the most, um, the greatest reason why we don't think enough about this kind of stuff is we've overreacted to the, the negatives. We've overreacted to the fanaticism. And we just have to be careful. And we have to be careful in any area, whether we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, whether we're talking about demons, whether we're talking about anything related to doctrine, that we don't overreact to somebody else's bad theology. We do it all the time, and we need to be careful. So, anyway, those, I think, are some reasons why we don't have this mindset that the New Testament has about looking forward to the grace that's yet to come. And so, given that we do fall so far short in this area of looking to the grace yet to come, what can we do about it? How can we better obey Peter's command for us to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, we need to have our minds renewed in this particular area, and one way to do that is to simply spend time going through some of these blessings of grace that are yet to come, that are ours, but that are yet to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do then with the rest of our time this morning is just look with you briefly at some of these blessings that the Bible itself tells us belong to us as Christians, things that are blessings of grace, but yet they're still yet to come. They're still coming. And what we'll see as we look through here is that the vast majority of our salvation is yet to take place, and we lose sight of that. The best is yet to come for the Christian. For the non-Christian, they have nothing. Think about this. The non-Christian has nothing to look forward to but wrath and judgment. That's it. It doesn't get any better than this. Right now, they're receiving the best that they're going to receive in this world right now. This is it. But for the Christian... What we receive right now in this world is nothing compared to what's yet to come. Nothing compared to the grace and the blessing that are ours that are yet to come. So, we'll finish then this morning just by looking at a few of these. So what are some of these blessings of grace that are yet to come? And again, the reason why I'm doing this is because Peter tells us to fix our hope completely on the grace that's yet to come to us. And so we need to know, well, what are some of the things that are coming that are gifts of grace that are ours yet to come, so we can fix our, our hope on those things. Well, here's a few of them. First of all, we have our final adoption, the redemption of our bodies, the receiving of a glorified body. Uh, he, Romans chapter 8. Verse 23, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So here's Paul's talking about an adoption that's yet to come. Of course, we have already been adopted as sons and daughters of God, but there's an aspect of our adoption that is yet to come, and that's the receiving of a glorified body, the redemption of our body. Paul says we're still waiting eagerly for that. And again, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 
in verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. So here's a transformation of the body that Paul is yet looking forward to, the final redemption of our bodies. Now think of this, no more sickness, no more disease, no more death, no more hearing loss, no more cancer. You know, I think of Carol Brackensick passing away recently of cancer. No more cancer, no more sickness. But also, and this is something we don't think much about, no more tiredness, no more wandering thoughts. I mean, how many times have we sat down here to worship God or have you sat down at home with your Bible and you're really wanting to read and dig in and immediately you think of 90 different things that you need to do that day? I mean, wandering thoughts. No more wandering thoughts. No more messed up emotions. I mean, we'll finally be able to respond emotionally rightly to the truth that we hear and to the things of God. I mean, right now, even at the best of times, we, we don't respond appropriately emotionally even to the truth that we hear. I mean, you hear a wonderful sermon and you're just dead as a stone. You know, that's, it's, it's a result of the fall, and it's something that will be changed when we receive our resurrection bodies. Uh, I like that scene there in Revelation 7 where it talks about the saints serving um, the Lamb, day and night. No more tiredness. So you can serve God, finally. You can serve God day and night without ever growing weary, without ever growing tired. So the first thing then, our final adoption, redemption of our bodies, the receiving of a glorified body, uh, that in and of itself is, is an amazing gift of grace that's yet to come. Secondly, deliverance from the wrath to come. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 and verse 8, Paul says this, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So Paul's speaking here of a salvation that's yet to come, a saving from the wrath of God that's yet to come. And then again in 1 Thessalonians 1, Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and, what, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
And so another blessing of grace that belongs to you as a Christian is deliverance from the wrath that's yet coming. According to Romans 1, God's wrath is already being revealed from heaven right now. As God progressively gives men over to their sins, over to hardness of heart, judging them already for the things that they've done. But the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God is yet to come. And we forget that so many times. The greatest demonstration of God's wrath is still coming. And he says, says a little bit about this, John does, in Revelation chapter 6. I'll just read this to you. It says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Notice in verse 15 there I read, he talks about kings, great men, commanders, rich. In the very same breath, he talks about slaves and free men. Every level of humanity, you see, it doesn't matter. Your money's not going to save you. Your position, your authority is not going to save you. When that day comes, everybody's on the same level. Slaves are right on the same level with the kings of the earth. And they're all calling on the rocks and the hills to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But, beloved, what we need to see is that you don't have any part in that. You see, you're saved from that. You're not just saved now from your sins and, that, and saved from the wrath of God in that sense, but you're saved from the wrath that is yet to come. It doesn't, have any, any, it doesn't hold any fear for the Christian anymore. Jesus is a Savior completely, forever. We sang victory in Jesus this morning. Victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. Not just right now. My Savior in the future. My Savior from the wrath to come. In Hebrews 7, it says Jesus is able to save forever. Or it could be translated completely. doesn't just save from sin in the here and now, but saves from the wrath yet to come. Thirdly, another gift of grace that's ours is we have a, we'll be given authority to judge the world in angels. And this is amazing. 1 Corinthians 6. I talked before about blessings that are ours to come that are hard to understand. Well, this is one of them. 1 Corinthians 6. In verse 1, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? And then it, Christ talks a little bit about this in the Gospels, and I'll just read these to you. In Matthew 19, he says this, Peter's asking him, Lord, we left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus says this in return, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me, 
in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And again in the book of Luke, it says this, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So again, I don't know exactly what this is going to look like. I don't know I don't even I don't know what it means. I'm just going to be honest. I don't know what this means. But I do know that it's something that God has granted us as a blessing of grace, a gift of grace that we he tells us here that we're actually going to judge the world and judge angels. Even if we don't know what it means, we can be thankful for it knowing that it's going to be something wonderful and glorious. It's a gift of God. Whatever it does mean. Uh, fourthly, we'll be receiving a kingdom. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Christ is talking here about the, the his second coming and the judgment. In verse thirty-four, he says, "Then the king will say to those on his right." Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, he talks about how we are going to receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. He talks about how God's going to come and shake everything up and we're going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It will still be standing yet after God's done judging everything else. So here, a kingdom. We'll be receiving a kingdom. It seems like a reference to heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom. Uh, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So it's all it's references to the new heavens and new earth. Our final resting place, heaven, will be receiving a kingdom. As Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. This isn't our final home, people. And the Bible talks so much about that, but again, we miss it. You know, we think this is this is all there is. That we think this is where we're going to to be. Um, but this is not our final home. Our citizenship, we're actually citizens of heaven. Fifthly, we'll have the removal of all temptations and stumbling blocks. And I'll just read this to you. I'm right here anyway from Matthew 13. Uh, he's talking about the parable of the dragnet. Matthew 13. Or actually, here he's talking about the tares, I'm sorry. It says, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So God is going to gather out of His kingdom all forms of stumbling blocks. It's something to think about. Not only will heaven not be a place where sin can enter into anymore, there will be no sin there, but also, there won't even be stumbling blocks there. There's not even a possibility of sinning. The stumbling blocks themselves have been removed. So the removal of all 
stumbling blocks. Uh, Something else, we'll have a renewed creation. Romans chapter 8 again, verse 19. Romans 8:19 for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God and then Revelation 21 God just says this behold I make all things new. So the renewal of the creation itself. Now, I've seen some pretty amazing sights in person, some pretty amazing sunsets and different natural wonders. Uh, I've seen even more in pictures and videos. But we can't even begin to imagine what that first sunset is going to look like in the new heavens and new earth. You can't imagine it. I mean, we think it's beautiful now. I mean, we just can't even imagine what it's going to be like once the creation has been set free from its slavery to corruption. The beauty that will be there. Just a few more, and then we'll wrap it up here. Um, Number seven, we'll have increasingly greater revelations of God's glory to us. Ephesians chapter 2. We read part of this earlier, talking about God raising us up with Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 6, "...raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." Why? "...so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Pretty amazing there, that He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, every Christian, to a certain extent, has experienced something of God's grace and kindness. We looked at before, every aspect of our salvation flows out of that. But God will spend all of eternity displaying in a greater and greater way the surpassing riches, as it says here, of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So again, I would just say to you, you haven't even begun to see the kindness of God towards you. So much more yet to come. Uh, Next, the manifest presence of God, Revelation 21. Another blessing of grace yet to come to the believer. The manifest presence of God. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Notice the word tabernacle there. In other words, it's not just 
He's going to pop in and then leave. He's tabernacling there. It's, his, his presence is going to be there among His people. It says He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Now those of us who have experienced maybe just a little taste of when God moves in a meeting, when God pours His Spirit out, you've experienced in a measure the manifest presence of God. And I can remember a meeting there in Hannibal at one time uh, when God came and it was almost it was like the atmosphere was charged. It was like you were breathing in the very presence of God. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, but it's like nothing else you can experience here on earth. But again, beloved, there's going to come a time when that manifest presence of God is going to be there all the time, constant, constant manifestations of His presence. And then lastly, if we flip over a page to Revelation 22, the greatest blessing of grace that's yet to come is greater fellowship with the person of Christ. Revelation 22, notice how everything in Revelation is leading up to this last and final thing. Everything is leading up to this conclusion in Revelation 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. In verse 4, they will see His face. Remember in, in Revelation chapter 1, when the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, saw the risen Lord, he fell at his feet as a dead man. But again, there's going to come a time when we will see his face. No fear, no worry. We'll see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. We will belong to him for eternity. I like the way this hymn puts it. Sweet is the hope that is thrilling my soul. I know I'll see Jesus someday. Then what if the dark clouds of sin over me roll? I know I'll see Jesus someday. What a joy it will be when His face I shall see. I know I'll see Jesus someday. So again, I say to you, we need to have our minds renewed to think in these terms of looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Peter says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. And we haven't even looked at everything this morning, not near everything, that are blessings of grace that are yet to come to the Christian. But we need to learn to fix our hope not just on past grace and present grace, but the grace that's yet to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of these are things that we could never earn. Truly, God's grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. 
but will spend eternity having more and more of those riches heaped upon us, not because of who we are, but because of who He is, because He delights to manifest the glory of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus.